living in a world that's all by design, it's up to us to break the chains of tyranny to become we, the ungovernable. You are listening to the Renegades Rant Podcast with your host, the Kentucky Renegade. It's the Christmas season, and if you're looking to get one of your loved ones something from a veteran-owned and American company, look no further than hardluxallamericanapparel.com. Now, Keith has partnered with some of the best veteran-owned companies out there, Nine Line to Valhalla Project, K-Bar Soap Company, Blackout Coffee, Duke Cannon, Warfighters.com, and Enter Mugs. So please, if you're looking to get those stocking stuffers and gifts for under the tree from an American-owned and veteran-owned company, go check out hardluxallamericanapparel.com. Just let them know that the Kentucky Renegade sent you. At this time, I want to take a moment to thank my official sponsor, Inert Mugs. They have just launched their newest product, a 20-ounce tumbler inspired by the Heliborn Laser Fire and Forget Missile better known as the Hellfire. Originally designed to defeat tanks and armor, the Hellfire has gathered fame as the go-to weapon for precision strikes against the worst of the worst. This design fully captures the beauty and ferocity of the Hellfire, and inner mugs have incorporated a few hidden surprises into the design. So head over to innermugs.com and pick up yours today. And just for you, the listeners, use the promo code RR1776 and take 20% off your order. With the holidays around the corner, consider picking up a few extras as gifts. And remember, orders over $100 ship for free. It's innermugs.com. All the flair without the pop. All right, welcome to the show, everybody. I'm very excited to have my next guest on. Uh, for those of you who have been listening to me, know that I'm about prepping and skill sets. And I am fortunate enough to have a gentleman here on the show today that comes from Save One More Dot Life. He is the president and lead instructor. Welcome to the show, Twitch. Hey, thank you for having me on. Hey, no problem. So, how's it going in your neck of the woods? Going good. I'm uh, currently hanging out in Virginia my home state ah so you're like in what part of like east west north south so virginia uh, yeah so we're near uh lynchburg area for now but the reason i'm not too worried about that is i, I travel all over so if someone tries to locate me here they'll have trouble <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the way i feel about people trying to locate me as well you know uh, i'm a very constitutional person and i will utilize my constitutional right <laughs> i feel you uh so, you know, one of the reasons why I had you come on the show, I seen your video that was put out by the angry prepper. And I mean, this is the, the, the thing and, and people, I will put it on my social medias, um, the video that, that was done and being part of this prepping community and networking communities for people who live off grid and, and do the off grid thing. Uh, it's very essential to have skill sets and to have a medical skill set is a very important part of this. Now, 
what you do is exactly what a lot of places and communities are wanting to get into. And not only that, not just for prepping and, you know, uh, uh, just having the skill set, but I mean, it's a necessary life skill. I mean, there may be a time that you come upon a wreck or there's some kind of medical emergency that's out there and to have the proper training and to know what to do in these situations, it's people like you that train people to do this that can help save lives. Absolutely. And it's interesting that we were talking about car wrecks uh, just a second ago. I was sent um, a series of photos from a student of mine from, gosh, more than a year ago now. And we'll, we'll call him Jay. That's not his name, but Jay. And uh, Jay sent me these photos. He had just responded to a car wreck of all things. He sent me these photos just an hour ago. And it's pretty graphic stuff. Uh, I might even send them to you kind of separately, but I posted them on Save One More Life, uh, the Instagram page we have just a few minutes ago. They're pretty graphic and it's got a significant injury. Uh, it looks to be a puncture wound to an arm of a guy in a car wreck. And it, the, the car itself is just absolutely demolished. And it's, it's amazing that we as preparedness-minded individuals more often associate wounds and general bleeding with gunshots. And I think part of that feeds into our Second Amendment interest, right, that pretty much all of us would have. And while right. I value that, it's just not the sum of it all. It's not, it's not broad enough. Car wrecks happen much more frequently, thank God, uh, than bullet wounds in our country. So if we look at that as where we are most likely to encounter injuries, it's actually on the street. And it was just interesting when he sent me those photos and I was real proud of him. Um, I've actually had two this week of students that have um, gotten in touch with me and let me know that, hey, they had rendered aid and both of which were in car wrecks. So that's the environment that I think even someone who's not interested in the guns, the armor, the tactical end of things, that's, that's something that hits everybody. Every mom, every granddad, everyone should be capable of doing the skills that we try to teach people in class. Even down to children. Uh, I do obstacle courses with my daughter who's six in the house and we do wound packing and tourniquet applications and that she's six. So I think this is something that's kind of for everyone. So I'm pretty proud. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a definitely a necessary skill that everybody, even starting out at a young age, just knowing the basic uh, first aid, just being able to, to take care of a small wound to, you know, a medi mediocre wound to, you know, all the way up to where it's a trauma. Absolutely. It's amazing how often this stuff happens all around us. And, you know, we don't always see it. Um, you and I were talking before the show that I was a police officer um, for about four years, which in the grand scheme is not that long. But, man, I had a high frequency of, of violent responses uh, in the city that I worked. And in that time, I got to render aid to a lot of people. And some of it was major. Some of it was fairly minor. But I found that much more frequently than we give credit to, people get injured. And again, whether it's a car wreck or something more violent. It happens all the time. It's not a question of if we as people are going to bleed one day, it's when. If we live long enough, everyone bleeds eventually. The question is how much. 
And these skills, they apply to minor bleeding as well as massive bleeding. And I think that we neglect it as a society uh, far too much. I think that we should have this stuff much more common in schools. If you're going to teach CPR and AED, shoot, every student in high school should be able to learn bleeding control. Oh, 100%. It's just amazing that we haven't gotten there as a society. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, just not to go too far into it, but the schools don't teach anything anymore. Yeah. Yeah. They need, they need to teach life-saving skills as part of the health program. I agree. I agree. And again, it's going to apply to them at some point. Yeah. And, and, you know, the thing of it is, we're not just talking about bleeding and stuff and, and the injuries that we do see the, the major concern for me for kids is overdoses. Yeah. You know, I think it's very important that parents and students alike all carry Narcan in their, in their either backpacks, vehicles, whatever Narcan needs to be a necessity that people carry nowadays. Well, and I actually learned uh, recently in Virginia Gosh, I think I heard this story a week ago that there was a school, an elementary school uh, nearby that had an exposure that was fairly significant. I think it was like six elementary aged kids that got exposed and it was in a candy form. So I could just play this out in my head. I don't know if this is how it happened, but I can play it out in my head that, okay, uh, little Johnny, he sees mom or dad or Uncle Jim or somebody using their special candy. And in many cases, it is actually disguised for any any listener that doesn't know. In many cases, this stuff will be disguised as a harmless drug like Tylenol or as candy. So it's not spotted as easily. But a child simply picking it up can have an exposure, something like heroin or fentanyl that, that can absorb in the skin. So if you take that environment where kids see somebody using this stuff all the time in their home life, they say to themselves, you know, mommy never lets me have any of that. So I'm going to take it without her knowing. And they go to school and they offer to share it with other kids because they're just trying to share this special candy. Next thing you know, you've got six juveniles that have been exposed. And I agree with you. I think that it should be much more commonplace. Uh, But I find that most people don't want, they don't want to come to terms with that. It could ever happen to them. And that's something that's hard to get over. Yeah. And you see a lot of the majority of the overdoses are from people who don't think it's going to happen to them and they get an exposure because they either one touch something that had the residue on it or they unknowingly took it, you know, candy form or whichever, however it was put in, whatever it was in. Absolutely. You know, and I think that's a very important thing that I think that needs to be put in people's vehicles, have at home. I have them in my go bags. I have them, you know, in my truck and in my other vehicle. I always make sure that I have it all. And if you can't, if you're embarrassed to go and get it from a certain place, you can always go to your local health departments. They always have these uh, giveaways, too, where you can go and you can pick it up. Yeah. In fact, I participated in one recently. Um, and again, as a police officer, it's, it's interesting. They never issued us Narcan. Um, and fentanyl was evident then. I mean, I left police work in uh, March of 2021. And fentanyl and, and heroin were everywhere. Every, in fact, anytime we encountered uh, overdose, if someone told us that they were using heroin, we could guarantee it had fentanyl in it, which is much more dangerous than just heroin. So 
when I was uh, hearing about a local one of those giveaways, uh, I decided my wife and I both did, hey, let's go and, and see what this is about. 10 minutes later, you go in, they give you a quick demo with a trainer version of Narcan. And I'd, I'd seen this before, but they give you the demo, you hold the trainer one, and then they tell you to sign a piece of paper and that's almost it. And they give you Narcan. So yeah. it, it was very hands off. You know, there wasn't a lot of oppressive view. It was it was actually very relaxed. Yeah, like here and where I live in Kentucky, they have a in, right across the river in Indiana as well. You can just go to local health departments. Some businesses, they just have what's called the opioid exposure box. You can just open it up and you can take two, three things of Narcan with you. And that's all you need to do. Wow, I hadn't heard of that. Yeah, there's there's a lot of uh, companies and businesses around in this area. That's what they do. They They restock it basically every week. People just go and they pick it up and that's all you have to do. Wow. That's something. I mean, cause the, I mean, it's bad. It's bad here. It's bad all around the U S I mean, you just take in consideration what's going down at the Southern border. We have all these people coming across and you have all this stuff coming into our country unstopped. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, border can border patrol can only do so much. Oh yeah. I mean, it's amazing how sophisticated, uh, the drug trafficking networks are. And I'm not even really in the know on that. But what I do know is if you have um, even micro level skill, you can have this stuff mailed to your door. And in fact, we used to have um, various cases of this would happen. We'd have undercover units that would have to monitor various abandoned properties. We would, you know, maybe have a um, undercover unit get notified by a CI or something like that. That, hey, there's going to be a drop and it's going to be at this address at this time. Man, it would be the literal U.S. Postal Service dropping this stuff off. They don't know what's in it and they don't have enough manpower on the back end at the big old warehouse where they're bringing your mail. They don't have the ability to address every possible package that may contain drugs or paraphernalia. So they would have this stuff literally just shipped to people's houses through things like the black uh, black market on dark web. And it wasn't even hard. People could show you how to do this. It didn't take a lot of knowledge. And they'd have some guy they paid, you know, $50 to sitting next to the house at the next door over. And when that package gets dropped off, he'd go pick it up. So it's incredibly sophisticated. But at the same time, it's so simple that it's actually hard to track in a lot of cases. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I watch uh, Contraband Caught at the Border. Um, the TV series that's on, I think it's on Nat Geo, but it, you just see exactly everything that they try to pull over on the border patrol and HSI and all them trying to get fentanyl and heroin and all these different drugs through our border. And then when they do to get it through, you know, the ramifications of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the amount of money that's going into this stuff kind of says a lot. So if we think about it just from a business end, if we had a business that was a million dollar a year business, we're going to do everything we can to make that business more efficient and to get our products, whatever those are, more um, available to the consumer so that we can make more money. Right. And if we just use that simple version, looking at cartels, that's going to be exactly how they're thinking as well. It's just using poison. So they're still trying to find the most efficient ways to get their product to the consumer. 
And they're going to use people that are disposable. They're going to use addicts that are disposable. They're going to use people that are just the mules that are moving the, uh, the narcotics. They're not going to actually care about these people, but the goal is the same. They're going to get their product to the street level. Another thing we have to factor in is that they know they're going to lose some product. So for every big bus that we hear about that makes the news where they catch, you know, some big truckload of, of something at the border, man, we can probably guarantee that what 10, 20, maybe a hundred got missed. Oh yeah. They're not getting all of them for sure. No. And that's why they mass produce what they do. I mean, it don't even come into their profit margins. They don't really care because they know they're going to get caught at the border. It's the ones that aren't going to get caught that they're not really concerned about. Correct. And I'll give you another example. Again, this is uh, more dealing with uh, with guns, right? Because that's another industry is uh, underground gun sales. So we had a case one time that I was not really part of. I was on the periphery of it. I knew some of the players involved. And they were uh, gang members from the city that I worked in the exact area that I worked. And the last two years I was a cop, I worked in the most dangerous area of our city. So some of these players we knew just by name. We knew what they looked like. We knew where they lived, the guys they bumped around with. And they would go spend, you know, 10 grand maybe at a time buying firearms in a more conservative state. Let's say it's Virginia, right? They go buy firearms in Virginia. And they'd have somebody that's not going to show up with a criminal record that would do it. Then they would take those guns, whatever, however however many firearms, $10,000 would get them. And then they would go to a place like New Jersey and they would play it out. So they had uh, objectives to go up there and gamble. And all this would be on their Facebook or on their Instagram, right? Because these guys like to advertise what they're doing. And so they talk about, yeah, we're going up. We're going to we're going to play roulette at, you know, whatever casino on the boardwalk. Well, what they wouldn't tell you was there would be another car and the other car would be full of women and they would be going up there. And if you were to ask anyone, oh, it's, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's my girls. They want to hang out. So they got the girl's car and then the guy's car, right? Well, the guy's car is more likely to get pulled over. So they wouldn't be carrying the firearms. The women would. So they would transport the guns, go all the way up north, and then they would sell them on the black market for $10,000 a gun. And then they would repeat this. And how, how quick do you think we can make quite a bit of money doing that? And they would do this pretty frequently. So anybody that says, well, we're just going to work around this by doing gun control. No, that's not going to work because criminals are smart, too. They're human beings also. They're going to find a way to work around the system. Yep. And, you know, I was watching... Uh another show that where they were doing some undercover stuff and they were out in California and they had these uh, undercover reporters go in and they were following around these uh, cartel members and they were talking to them about purchase. Part of their job was to go out and purchase guns for the cartel okay. and to get them back into Mexico. So the lady asked, she was like, so how much would you pay for an AR-15? And the cartel was like $5,000. Oh, wow. So it didn't matter to them if it was a Daniel Defense or a Ruger or a Smith & Wesson. It was just a flat $5,000 for whatever kind of AR-15 it was. So you just think about that. Like if you go and buy a $1,000 AR-15, you can turn around and you can profit four more thousand dollars by selling it to the cartel and that's what a lot of these people are doing 
Oh, wow. And we know that the Los Angeles Police Department's under investigation for getting guns to the cartels to get them back into Mexico after they confiscate guns. So that's very bothersome that we have a big police department like the Los Angeles Police Police Department basically smuggling guns to the cartels to get them back across into Mexico. And those are guns that are probably going to be US used on US citizens. You know what's interesting to me is that we I think we sometimes forget that uh human beings are corruptible, you know, and I view everything in my life from a spiritual vantage point. And I don't expect everyone else to. That's not my point. But with that lens, I can look at the Bible and see that we're given explanations for sin. And if you look at even very prominent figures throughout the Bible, like David, King David is is one of the most identifiable figures in the Bible. And you look at him and you'll still see that he was a fallible man. You know, he was not perfect. And you'll see that he had a lustful nature about him. At certain points, he would have had arrogance. So when I look at someone like that, and they were still used so prevalently by the Lord, I look at myself and I'm like, well, I'm not near that awesome comparing to David. So my chances are, are I think, significantly uh, lower to be used in comparison. But then he constantly uses us anyway. So I think that we can apply things that we see in the Bible to be more relevant in our world. You know, we can't look at human beings and expect them to function without oversight properly. I think we see that with Congress right now, with our presidency. There's got to be some level of oversight with organizations. So I don't know the um, the context or the story dealing with the Los Angeles police, but I, I, w- I would really be shocked because human beings are corruptible. And if we don't have a strong moral code, whether it's biblical or not, then we're, we're easily shifted. So money is a very tangible way that many people fall victim to a lot of things. So I think that uh, while I wouldn't be shocked by that, it's also incredibly sad. It undermines what the police force is supposed to be known for. And, yeah. You know, that's something we were dealing with before I left in Again, I wasn't an LAPD cop, but I mean, a city is going to have certain symptoms. Um, Again, I can back that up with the Bible, too. Sodom and Gomorrah were cities. Um, You got to be careful being in cities too long, I find. And when when we have these symptoms happen in cities where people get kind of drowned by the amount of sin, the amount of wickedness that's going on. You see symptoms of that. People start getting confused. Their moral codes, moral compass starts becoming a little bit off. And it can be very subtle. And then after a while, it becomes normal. And then after a while, that normal will change even further. And the next thing you know, you don't know what gender you are or if you're a cat or not. <laughs> and it's an unfortunate train, train of events. But uh, I think that is how that happens. It's very subtle. But I think that's how we get there by kind of ignoring truth, ignoring that there is good in the world. Well, it's just, it's the destruction of history. It is. Yeah. It repeats all the time. Uh, I found uh, John Glove, I think was the guy's name. Um, What was it? The, uh, it was like collapse of fate of empires. I think it was, it was a very interesting read, pretty short. And he goes into some pretty good depth on uh, the historical circles that go on where different civilizations, they, run their length of time, roughly 250 years. 
and that empire will eventually die off in a very similar way to what we're seeing now. I would like to take a moment to talk about my official sponsor of the Renegades Rant podcast. That's trinot.com backslash sinmin, C-I-N-M-I-N. Now, this is Cindy Davis, and she is a representative for Trinot. And please go check out her website and check out her shop because she has a lot of amazing products. These are for both men and women, and these are products you can trust. Now, they have products such as Enrich. This is a fan favorite that's specially formulated to support the body's microbiome and encourage healthy digestion. Also, check out Nourish. Uh, Look after your gut, microbiota, and your skin will flourish. This is a GOS prebiotic meal replacement to help improve gut health and nutrition. Also improves gut skin access and increases beauty benefits on the skin. So please, if you would, go check out Cindy Davis and trinot.com backslash sinmen. Now, if you need to get a hold of her, you can also email her at sinmen03 at gmail.com. You can also find her in my link tree in my bio. Thank you. See that, you know, things kind of go circular, you know, empires last roughly 250 years and you'll see exceptions, of course, but generally that's the time frame that they'll last. And the U.S. has had about that time frame. And I think that we're seeing symptoms that we could verify looking at Rome or Greece or a bunch of different ones. And we can see that they have tendencies towards the same problems that we have, where uh, men become more effeminate and they start having much more sexual lusts. Uh, In fact, sex as a thing in the culture becomes much more prominent. You'll see that uh, like the gladiatorial games for Rome became a big focus in several of the um, emperor's time frames. And they would do that stuff for the same reason that football, I think, exists. It's a distraction. Um, you know, I find myself scrolling through things that are just burning time. They have no real value or use. It's a distraction. And as long as we can be kept distracted, I think that people are easier to control. And I can, I can even say that with my kids, right? So if we have children that are um, just being kind of fussy, We try to distract them with things. We try to give them something to do to take their mind off of what was making them fussy. And we're no different, really. We're just older. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, uh, it's called sports entertainment for a reason. Yeah. You know, they want to keep you distracted. Then they're going to they're going to load up the commercials to be, you know, go get your COVID shot. And then they're going to be like, here, you need to go gamble. Um, here, go to Vegas and, you know, basically waste your life away in sin and do all the things that, you know, people wouldn't normally do, but we're going to consume you with more shit you don't need and then more fear that they can push on you. Yep. And the, you know, the part that is so important is to not fear. And that's the thing that's really difficult. Even if we don't feel like we're afraid, um, I think it's interesting what, at least I observed during the pandemic where we were given a lot of pieces of information. I remember a specific night where I was uh, watching TV with some friends of mine and they they had Fauci on there and he was given the conversation about how many people were going to die. And I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was massive to the extent where I looked at my wife and I said, if he's right, 
then at least one person from our family will die. And I remember that being a really heavy moment for us because I just feel like that's a certain level of fear that our, our country hasn't had to deal with in probably about a hundred years. Uh, probably since um, we had the Spanish flu, probably sometime around there, there would have been a similar vibe. And so our current generations haven't been confronted with that. And then I also had to look at it and I'm about to have to go right back to the city. That's probably going to kill me. And so my wife and I had uh, conversations about that. And I was a cop the whole year of 2020 and all, uh, all of the questions about, are we going to have fire bombings of our police department? Are we going to have riots? We had a lot of different unknowns. And you had the risk of every human interaction we had, we were being told could be lethal. And I learned a lot in that, that uh, we can't live our life constantly worrying about what might happen. Instead, we need to constantly be looking as to what we can do with the time that we have. And that's kind of what caused my wife and I to start Save One More Life is we want people to be doers. We want people to act instead of observe. And the stuff that we teach, I think is easy to, uh, to teach to pretty much anybody because it's not teaching anyone to do anything violent. You know, So for example, um, I prayed about all that was going on in Ukraine and I spent about three years of my life this year in Ukraine. And for two and a half months of that, uh, my family was actually with me and we were training people in how to delay death and save lives. Just like I'm teaching with save one more life. And while we were there, I've had people ask me, you know, I can't believe or mention to me, I can't believe that you're going over there and fighting somebody else's war. And I said, I didn't go to fight a war at all. Like I did. I never carried a firearm over there. We got to shoot with the soldiers a couple of times. That was purely for fun and for camaraderie. So the mindset that I had was, I'm not going for the violence, guys. I'm going because there's people dying. There's kids that are getting blown up. There's orphans and widows being made. And I think I can do something to help with that, maybe even just a little. And so by teaching people to render aid, I was like, this seems just like such a green area to function in because I'm not teaching anyone to do violence. Because I actually, I don't inherently care about their war. I care about human life. And... I think that made it more relatable uh, to people, even over here, when I explain it that way. It's like, guys, I don't care anymore about the Ukraine war than the next guy, even though I have friends that are over there. Um, but I inherently don't care about it. I do care about life and I do care about the preservation of life. And that seems like just such a green area to me. I don't have any conflicts in my mind of teaching this stuff to pretty much anybody. So with your organization, uh, kind of just walk us through what your classes are and what kind of trainings you have. Sure. So to start with, uh, none of the current three classes that we have listed, none of them are PowerPoint based. <laughs> so I teach in a way that works for me, meaning it's how I would like to be taught. And I get bored easily. So I don't like sitting in a classroom. I'm not a big note taker. There is a time and a place for that but that's not my style. So uh, all three of the classes that are listed, which I'll go into in a moment, all three of them are very hands-on. 
it's a very tactile learning environment because we're trying to give people reps and sets of these skills with the information so that if they show up at a car wreck, they can act with the actual hands-on experience that they have gained in class. Book knowledge does not always translate very well when the incident is real. So we try to give people some of the book knowledge with a huge helping of the physical, tangible knowledge. And people also start to figure out how things work more because they actually get to try it. And I'll get a little bit more into that in a moment. But the first class we do is called Lifesaver. Lifesaver is uh, le the level one class that we offer. Now, by level one, don't misunderstand. It's not beginner level in most cases. Uh, if you're someone who has had some trauma aid knowledge prior, then maybe it would be beginner level. But you are going to get hands-on application experience under stress with a team of people repeatedly. And we do that with scenarios as well. So in a four hour span for that class, you will go through uh, probably close to 40 or 50 tourniquet applications. And we don't do it halfway. You do the tourniquet till you actually shut off the blood flow. And then we do things physically with that on to build people's confidence. So it's one thing to put a tourniquet on your leg. It's another thing to have to carry somebody while doing it. So meaning your leg is now disabling itself, right? You're losing function gradually by having the tourniquet on. And then we're going to make you continue to help your people. So we're building people's mental resolve to not quit. And then the teamwork aspect, we do everything as a team unless otherwise told. So when we do scenarios, you're responding to a variety of different things. You're getting visual stimulations from blood mix that we throw in. There's a lot of audible stimulation because in my experience, when things go bad, it's very chaotic, it's very loud. So we try to involve that and people's senses can get overwhelmed. So the student, when their senses get overwhelmed, they start to learn how they respond under stress. When your heart rate is up, when it's not easy, it's not a classroom setting. And people get a lot of gold nugget moments out of those times where they start to find out, hey, my body makes my leg shake during this moment when Twitch was yelling about something. Okay, well, now that they know that, they can work through that. And when it's real, like that car wreck I mentioned at the beginning here, he can actually respond effectively and actually make a difference. And then we got the second class, which is Life Keeper. Now, Life Keeper focuses on, all right, we got the tangible stuff in the first four hours, which we cover, by the way, the March algorithm. We go into, uh, people can Google that if they don't know what it is, but it's the step-by-step -step process of what and how you should render aid to someone who is injured, right? And it focuses predominantly around bleeding. Well, then we get to Life Keeper and we start taking people's abilities away. So they got all that practice in the first four hours. They come back from lunch and the next four hours, we start off by making them wear gloves and it seems simple just putting nitrile gloves on their hands until you start to use them. And you'll find out a few things that your dexterity changes. You can't feel as much and that the gloves will rip. That's a very important takeaway. Most trauma kits that you can buy on the market will come with one pair of gloves of whatever size they put in it. And most people will never try them on. So, we're relying on a kit that has sent a uh, essentially hand condom, right? This thing that's meant to keep us from getting a disease. 
And we're never going to size them. We're never going to try it out. We're never going to test that method and see how much durability does these gloves have. So we give them that opportunity. And then from there, we step it up. We start taking their whole hand away. So once they've gotten some practice in with what does it look like to do aggressive things with nitrile gloves on? Well, then we step it up further and I take their whole hand away. We'll literally just take the whole thing. And the other hand still has a glove on. And now they have to do all the same tasks that became very easy in the first four hours because they got lots of practice. And now we're going to make it harder by taking away 50% of their hands, right? So <laughs> everything just changed. Your brain is functioning differently because you're using one hand. And I even step it further by taking their dominant hand. So we're not used to have, I'm right-handed. I'm not used to having to brush my teeth with my left hand, right? Much less something like wound packing or wrapping a trauma bandage around somebody or putting a chest seal on or a tourniquet or anything like that. We're not used to that. So again, it's a confidence builder. It's encouraging to see that the students actually start communicating more because they don't have a choice. They have to use their team because they can't do the task on their own. And then we can't take it further than that. So I took their hand away. Cool. We leave that that way for a couple hours. And then I take an eye away. So we'll cover one of their eyes. doesn't matter really which, and it will stay that way. And then eventually we'll uh, take away a portion of their hearing with things like earplugs. And then we'll continue to do the exact same things that we had been doing. And we add a few more learning things in there too, but for the most part, it's very similar uh, tangible repetitions. And again, it's forcing the students to find new ways, maybe even better ways to do tasks that otherwise should be fairly simple. And then towards the end of that one, we take all that stuff off. We, we take all the, the hindrances, the disabilities away, and they get to do things with their whole body functioning normally again. And it's so awesome to watch. The students have just such an improved ability in just a handful of hours because they had to do it when it was hard. And then when it's not quite that hard, they, they just outperform well beyond what you would expect. And then, That's awesome. It is. And then finally, the, uh, the third class that we're offering right now is Night Rescuer. And that one is the next day. So we would do these in like a two-day span. It would be the next day. We do a voluntary Bible study at 5 p.m. on the second day. People can come or not. And then at 6 p.m., we do the night class. And so by 6 p.m., it's usually still fairly light outside. So we can still get um, some of the actual class items out of the way. You know, some of the actual instruction. We go over uh, various weapon lights, handheld lights, headlamps, uh, chemical lights, things like that as considerations that you would use at night. Because we spend half of our life in the dark, it's important to be able to function in the dark. So we go through some of that. And we'll do similar things again, uh, but the real value is the scenarios. So there's several really interesting scenarios during the night rescuer class. Uh, we go more into force on force in that. We have um, some really nice uh, like Glock 19X airsoft guns that we use for that situation. And it's, it's really important that we use things that are similar to real guns. And those are identical to a 19X They'll use my holsters. I can attach my weapon lights to them. So as far as how they function, it's really similar if anyone carries a real firearm. 
And we'll throw a whole lot of different things at them. It could be active shooter stuff. It could be somebody wielding a blade. It could be someone who has snatched kids at a church. We give a lot of different uh, scenarios in this. We also do things in and out of cars because again, we spend a significant portion of time in and around vehicles. So a lot of the scenarios that we throw in during the first day and the second day deal in or around cars. And I think that the, the heavy value that people get is just the repetitions that you're gonna have for these otherwise simple tasks that people will try once maybe. And I don't know about you, man, but I don't wanna bet my life or my family's life off of me training one minute with one item. You know, I don't wanna show up on a car wreck and say, I really wish I had spent 20 more minutes practicing with that gauze or that tourniquet. And then, you know, I think the really cool thing that we try to offer is, we're doing this like we did in Ukraine. We're doing it donation-based. So in Ukraine, I felt convicted to go and teach as many people as we could for, for as low cost as we could do, right? So some people might've donated money for materials, but the students weren't expected to pay. If they chose to donate to the cause, that was different. But we wanted to provide the service just because we think it's so valuable. And that's what we're doing here now too. So these uh, the public classes that we post online, you can just come to. Uh, we are very much uh, thankful for any donations that are given because that is what makes those classes possible. However, we know that there are people out there that have the right mindset. They have the right heart condition. They want to help people, but they just don't have the money to go to a $1,400 class. So you can literally sign up for the Save One More Life classes and you can choose to donate $5, $100, $1,000 or no dollars. You can just choose a number. And I think that gives kind of almost a cop out for the students too. If It's one thing if you try to tell me that you don't want to come to uh, a training because you just can't afford it. Well, that's not the factor now. <laughs> um, choosing to not receive training like this when we're trying to make it as available as possible, all you have to do is show up. And we provide the materials, again, the donations that people have already given. It's like a pay it forward mindset. If someone decides that the class had value while they were there, cool, man. If you feel like it's worth something, pay it to, uh, uh, pay it to the next guy. You know, donate for what the next class will cost. And so far, that's been a very successful format. That's really awesome. I mean, Definitely something that people really need to take into consideration, considering the world we're living in right now. It doesn't matter what country you live in. It doesn't matter what the situation is. Just having this training, uh, like you said, it saves lives. And, you know, if you come upon a wreck or, like I said, there's some kind of medical emergency, uh, it's well worth the training. It's well worth going and doing. That's right. And what we see a lot, uh, students will, will send an email after the class is all said and done and asking for anybody's feedback, good or bad, you know, because we learn a lot from bad feedback, but we don't usually get much. Uh, we also debrief in class, but one of the main things we've gotten feedback from students consistently on is that they feel empowered by the end of the classes. And so if I ask them, hey, can you clarify what you mean by that? They'll say, well, I'd like to think I would have tried to help somebody if I showed up at a shooting or at a wreck or something like that. But after the class, 
I know I can. I know I can do something about it. And that's what the, uh, the guy, Jay, that I mentioned that sent me those pictures a little bit ago, that's what he said is, you know, that he felt like after the class that he could do something more than maybe he could have before. Same thing with the other guy that contacted us this week saying that um, aid had been rendered. Again, that was a car wreck as well. He was saying he could just hear me in his ear saying, you can do it. And he's like, and you know what? I can. And that's the whole goal is to empower people and give them the skills so they can go forth and be like a righteous infection in the world and go out and spread that love and help people, man. Yeah. And the thing that I really liked about what you were talking about is the fact that you put them through the ringer of pressure. Oh, yeah. Because people don't realize you may think it might be something that you can just do when it, something like that happens. But once you actually get in there, the adrenaline rush is going to hit you at full max. Yes. Yeah. And I use a lot of personal testimonies uh, in this stuff. And something I think is a, is more effective maybe is when people come to class, it's not me trying to convince them that I know all the best ways of doing anything. It's me trying to show them a way or a couple ways to do something. So they've got some additional tools in their tool belt they can choose to use or not. But I also present it from usually uh, things that didn't go right in my own life. So I, I bring personal testimonies to things. And some of the stories that I bring um, were from the street level when I was a cop. Some of them were from when I've been instructing. And I had, uh, had a student one time, he stopped breathing in class. We had to put a nasal airway in him. Um, but then one that's very prominent that I think has more impact than any other is what started me caring about medical stuff in the first place. And that is, uh, from my nephew, his name was Tao and we were at his birthday party in, was it 2014? And in fact, it was in Virginia and the whole family's there all gathered around. He starts to choke on a baby carrot and he had just turned two earlier in that week. And so his mama was a nurse uh, at a, a local hospital, had been for years, and she's now a nurse practitioner. So she had the knowledge, right? And my, uh, my dad, myself, several other people in the room, we had been CPR and AED certified for years. I had to be for jobs. My dad was actually a CPR and AED instructor. And my nephew, he sucks this carrot back and he's really choking, like there's no movement of air anymore. And I'm watching him start to pass out. And so his mama, my sister, grabs him and tries to do back thrust, tries to dislodge this carrot. And eventually he passes out. Somebody says, hey, someone call 911. And so I'm the guy that has the phone in my pocket. So I get to it the fastest. And I say, all right, I got it. So I call. His mama's on top of him on the floor doing compressions. And when I get on the phone with dispatch, I tell them what's going on. They're like, cool. Has anybody tried back thrust? I said, yeah, his mama tried. It failed. He's passed out. They say, okay, we got people coming, but it's going to be a little while. We lived out in the country. And the lady says, is anyone doing CPR? I said, yeah, his mama is. Again, his mama was a nurse, a registered nurse. And she says, cool. Tell her to do two breaths and then 30 compressions. So I said, hey, this lady says, do two breaths to 30 compressions. I relay that to my sister. And in the middle of doing compressions on her son, my sister looks up at me. And I can still see her in my mind. And she says, he's choking 
are they sure about giving the breaths? And so I asked the lady again, I said, ma'am, he's choking. Are you sure about those breaths? She says, yes, do two breaths to 30 compressions. Now, what I didn't know at the time, but I know now because I've been a cop since then, <clears throat> was she doesn't know, man. She's, she's reading a script. I've been in dispatch offices since then. They have a book they flip through for the most common answers to the most common questions, and they will read it verbatim. She doesn't know what the answer is. And she's also not the one standing there. I am, my sister is, my family is. We're the ones that are actually responsible because we're the ones that are there. And because I had never been confronted with these different questions, like what if the person's choking? What do you do then? What if the person's not breathing, but they have a pulse? What do you do then? I had never had that in a CPR class. And I'd had to take several by this point in my life. Uh, I had to get certified again every year. My dad didn't ask that question either. My sister, she questioned it, but then I gave bad information. I should have taken a moment and I should have taken a breath. And I should have asked myself, does, does that make any sense? to give breath to someone whose airway is blocked? Because if I had thought about it, the answer is no, it makes no sense at all. You should just give compressions. We actually ended up doing this push-pull kind of thing with the carrot, man. We, because of the information I relayed, my sister, she gives these breaths and she does the compressions because she was trusting me to give her the right answer. And I didn't, I failed her. And so by giving the breath, you're forcing the carrot further down and then when you're giving compressions, you're kind of trying to move it back up and then you're giving breaths and you're pushing it back down. And eventually when they, they took him in the ambulance, they got him to the hospital, they pronounced him dead. They, Damn. they found that the carrot was so far lodged that only surgery would have removed it. And that's my hmm. fault, man. No, don't put that on you. So I actually own it on purpose because it is, I, I didn't have to give, the bad information that led to that bad outcome. Now, at the same time, we didn't cause him to choke, right? So I know that. And I don't carry the guilt of this now. I had to deal with that, though. What I do now is I make sure that I own it. And I make sure that I tell everyone that I teach in class that story. And it's a very specific moment in class when I share it. But I make sure that I share it in every class because I don't want anyone to do that again. And if people can learn from the things that went wrong or didn't go as well as they could, maybe, there's no telling how many people won't die because of bad decisions. And it even comes down to a spiritual thing for me, too. I refuse to believe that my nephew died for nothing. And it feels very much like Christ, right? So, again, no one has to believe the way I did to come to class, but it is what motivates me that I believe that Jesus, some people call him Yeshua or any number of other names. In Ukraine, they call him Jesus. Um, you got the Messiah of humanity, one person, right, who died for all of humanity. And as a result of that one death, billions could be saved, right? Correct. Well, that's how I view with my nephew. If I can share that story, and now I've shared it with uh, probably close to... 3,500 people, something like that. If I can share that story and each one of those people goes and tells one other person, and I know at least some of them have shared it because I've had them tell me later on that they've shared it with family. There's no way to estimate how many kids 
might not have their parents or their guardians make those bad decisions when it's their turn to respond. So that one death, even though I wish I could go back and change it, that one death may potentially save thousands. And just that's the power of the story, you know. And that's it. And that is what motivates me. <clears throat> well, you know, condolences to you and your family about that. Um, sorry for your loss. I mean. I appreciate that. Thank you. It's, you know, it's just things like that that does what you said. It motivates you. It makes you more determined not to repeat the errors that were made. Yep. And I tell you, that's the, the hurdle that we have uh, when we are trying to, I don't like using the word market, but we're trying to market the classes to, let's say, police departments or uh, moreover for schools. Schools are the real hurdle. Police departments, you at least get confronted with bad things, so you might see the relevance in it. What I find more often with, uh, with police officers is there's an arrogance that goes with it. We never wanted to admit that we didn't already know something. Because we were tasked with trying to tell the public what they ought to do, right? So you can suffer from a ego and you can suffer from thinking you don't need classes in trauma aid because, well, I'm a cop, even though that inherently meant nothing. Uh, most officers had no interest in trauma aid. So schools, though, are the, the big one in my mind that is difficult to portray to the faculty and to the teachers why they should care about it before an incident happens. It's really difficult to convince someone that it can happen to them. And I know this to be the case. I've taught a couple different uh, schools before. And one of them was an elementary slash middle school. And it was right before they, uh, they went back in for the new school year. My team and I, we, and this is when I worked for a previous employer, but still training in the same type of things. And I was their lead instructor and we go in and we're going to teach this room full of about 30 teachers that people are going to entrust with their children every day. And I had about five people in that room that actually cared about the class. And that format was classroom based because that's what the company wanted for the level one class. And so that one did have a PowerPoint. That one had a lot of hands-on stuff, but it was also a lot of information because that's what the, the, I guess, format that would work for teachers was thought to be. And what we found was I cannot make someone care about life. I can't make them believe that this could happen in their watch. So people like me, probably people like you, we know it can happen <laughs> so, because we've already gotten to witness it with our own eyes. I've already gotten to witness the life leaving a family member because I should have known more or I should have done more or I should have done something different. And so I want people to care about it, but trying to make them care about it before it happens to them proves a challenge. Yeah, 100%. And the thing of it is, I think schools, it should be a uh, requirement that the teachers go through this because of every school shooting that's been going on in this country for a long time now. Oh yeah. But you know, I mean, of course gun control is the answer for that, right? Come on now. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. Who, yeah. Who needs, who needs that? Who yeah. needs, uh, who needs the training when we could just get rid of the guns? I'll fix the problem. Like there's not, you know, thousands of stabbings more than, yeah. you know, 
the shootings. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just ridiculous. The things they want to ban. It was, we were literally trained in police Academy. The most dangerous things to us were handguns, not because they were as likely to penetrate our armor, but because they were more likely to be carried. So when I hear politicians and they're trying to ban things like AR 15s, I'm not hoping that they focus on the handguns, not at all, but it really doesn't make any sense because that's not the most dangerous thing that we encountered. Um, it, it also was not the most likely thing to find on the average person, right? You're not just going to find the average gangbanger carrying around an, a 16 inch AR. Uh, and no. if, if we did, we got lots of calls about it and we would arrive in force with equal weaponry, right? But they don't want to hit on that. Or the fact that, uh, at least the last time I looked at FBI statistics, that hands and feet, meaning fighting essentially, right? Kicks, punches, things like that would kill more people than any rifle in this country. And there's a lot of different kinds of rifles. Oh, yeah. So statistics like that, do they just get swept to the side that it's misrepresented or something? And it's just ridiculous. Bats, hammers, <laughs> knives, they're never going away. Cars. <laughs> Cars. Cars is becoming the new thing. Yeah, let's just use a car to ram through a parade and, and get as many people as you can. Yeah. And see, anytime I hear someone talk about they, they advocate um, the banning of firearms because, well, look at how many people have been harmed by these things. My reaction to that is, you know, you got a point there. We should ban cars as well. And nobody's going to be in favor of that. Right. Because, well, no, no, we can't ban cars. Well, there's not a constitutional right talking about cars. There's one talking about firearms, though. <laughs> right. But cars, if you look at those stats, they're almost parallel on any given year to the amount of people injured or killed as a result of cars. Well, so, okay, are, are we going to talk about banning those entirely? I'm not talking about just taking away the diesel ones or the, the uh, standard gasoline-fueled ones. I'm talking about all cars. We can't have those. <laughs> it might be dangerous. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Many of you who have been listening to this podcast know I support an organization called Change Unchained. Now, Change Unchained is a 501c3 anti-human trafficking organization. Now, this is ran by Troy and Tiffany. They have a burn-it-down ranch where they have tiny homes on the ranch for the victims. The victims receive their aftercare and life skills and the things they need to be turned back over into society. Now, we are needing to build more tiny homes. So we need you to make a donation or you can go to changeunchained.com, make the donation there, or you can also purchase any kind of merchandise like the hats, the shirts, the hoodies, uh, the things that they have on their shop. Those proceeds will go towards the tiny home and to the victims. Also, you can go to innermugs.com where they have collaborated with Change Unchained to do a Change Unchained Tumblr and Burn It Down Tumblr. The purchase of those, the proceeds will go towards the tiny home and the victims. So we need to put an end to human trafficking and please support Change Unchained. All right, so... Now, with your training and everything, I've got a question for you. Sure. For someone who is, you know, takes your training, what would you suggest to be the best kind of med kits and tourniquets to keep? All right. So let's break that down a little bit. 
So I think that there are some things you can uh, pay less for and get a somewhat equal item. All right, so I'll go there in a moment. I'm going to preface it with that. However, a tourniquet is not one of them. So I, in class, I try to show people uh, some of the cheaper varieties of things that will still work for the most part as well or really close as these professional grade items that are much more expensive. An example of that is a trauma bandage. You can go spend $7 on a North American Rescue emergency trauma bandage that's six inches long or wide rather, six inches wide. And it'll be about $7. What I use in class for purely for cost savings uh, is a $2 trauma bandage that is a six inch wide, just like the North American Rescue one, six inch wide, very similar in length, has Velcro closures on each end, but it's just an elastic band. They literally don't put a couple little small pieces of Velcro and they don't put a gauze pad on it. Otherwise, I get to save five whole dollars, right? So with some things we can skimp on. With tourniquets, though, people want to go on Amazon. And I've done this even before as well, where I didn't know better. When I, I was first year as a police officer, I bought uh, the three-pack, the Amazon special of what was said to be cat tourniquets, right? Combat application tourniquets. And they're not. They look similar. And they will even be advertised on Amazon as this is a cat tourniquet and they're lying. It's straight from China and there's ways you can identify it. They don't have any actual labeling on the tourniquet. It doesn't even say made in China. That's how offended or uh, how, uh, <laughs> how, <laughs> how ashamed they are of their product. They don't even put made in China on it. So it has no labeling. And then there's a couple other minor features that, someone like me who I've spent a lot of time around tourniquets, I can identify, but to the, to the average person that doesn't know any better. Oh, that's a tourniquet. Good enough. No, it will break. I promise it will break. I could probably text a guy right now who's currently in Ukraine and he could testify to me. I've got some guys that I know that are over there and they could testify how many Chinese tourniquets they have destroyed when someone needs it. And that's just not a good moment to find out that you didn't spend the right amount of money. So I recommend buying CAT Gen 7 tourniquets. You can go on a lot of websites for that. Uh, North American Rescue is who makes that item, and you can buy directly from them. You can also go to uh, refugemedical.com. They, they sell great supplies. A lot of it is from North American Rescue. Um, and then another good brand is TACMED. And they make the soft T, it's S-O-F-T. And that stands for Special Operation Forces Tourniquet. It's good too, but not as good in my opinion, uh, based on experience with the items, as the cat tourniquet. It has a really good role, the soft T does, but it's just not as easy to use in as many environments. So it's going to cost you $32 to $35 for a real Gen 7 cat tourniquet no matter really where you get it from. And that's about what I paid for mine. I got two of my vehicles and then I got two of my go packs. Exactly. And it seems, I mean, it's a lot of money. I'm going to be honest, man. That is uh, anytime we do a class, a huge portion of the donations goes to just the tourniquets because we're going to destroy them one per student um, because of what we make people do with them. So we will soak them in blood mix in mud in dirt, all kinds of stuff. 
that's another thing I learned while in Ukraine. Uh, I was doing some product testing for a uh, tourniquet company that was there, and it was called Pulse, P-U-L-S. And they had had like a Gen 2 or 3 come out, and I was buying a bunch of them to use with the soldiers because I could get them in country. And they were a lot cheaper. Yeah, they're cheaper for a reason. Man, they would break like right now as soon as they got wet. I even demonstrated it live for a guy that was affiliated once. Um, he was like, what's wrong with these? I was like, they break consistently. And I showed him how they would break and where. And I said, here, watch. I did six applications with that tourniquet. And it got really close to failing on the last two, but it fully failed on the sixth one. Now, to somebody that might not sound like a big deal, that was straight out of the package, brand new, had not been on a plate carrier that hadn't been wet prior. It wasn't living in your pocket for six months. This was brand new. And as soon as it got wet, the threads gave way. The company wasn't testing it the way I do. So they weren't finding out what's it like if it's in a trench full of mud. We were. <laughs> so uh, they failed so frequently that I stopped using them even for training. So um, you got to make sure that you're giving really good credence to the tourniquet. So don't, don't skimp on money on that. Then from there, uh, gauze, chest seals, and trauma bandage. Those three items after tourniquets are your three biggies to go with. Gauze is something you can probably spend a lot less money on. So you can get um, compressed gauze that, again, would come from these big-name companies like North American Rescue. And it's really good. Uh, it's, it's really good. It's very versatile. I've used it on real human beings that were really hurt. However, it's about $3 a pack. And again, you're going to use it once. And I really like having an abundance of gauze because it's so versatile, right? So $3 per pack, that adds up pretty quick. Well, you can go on, again, Amazon, and you can find some packages of gauze uh, Medline is a company that you probably want to look at, and you'll probably want to look for three or four inch wide gauze. And it'll come in a roll. It's not as pretty packaged. Uh, it's, it's much looser. So fitting it in like a trauma kit that's tightly packed is much harder to do. But if this is just extra stuff that you're going to have, you can pay something probably 30 to 50 cents per pack on that. Uh, that's a lot cheaper. With that kind of price, you don't mind using it and you don't mind training with it either. Then trauma, right. trauma bandages, there's a lot of different sizes of those and you will use the different size ones for some varying things like a four and a six inch trauma bandage. You'll use those for the most applications. They've got like the big cinch or uh, there's a big H&H bandage that's meant for abdominal wounds to like keep intestines in place. Um, but those are a lot more uncommon. You can spend five to eight dollars on a trauma bandage or you can do like i already talked about and get a ace bandage that <laughs> has velcro on each end and you spend two dollars and you know fold it yourself put it somewhere um and then from there chest seals so chest seals is another one i don't want to skimp on really if you're going to get chest seals either get halo or hyphen brand chest seals I've used both of those on casualties and we've also used them a lot in training. And I usually get them very wet in training on purpose. So the students, they get the vibe of what it will take, what it wants. Uh, they don't stick to everything. I've personally had a guy that was stabbed that uh, I couldn't get the blood to stop flowing fast enough to get a chest seal on him. 
and this chest seal just wouldn't stick to the bloody surface. So it was just a, a good learning moment. We practice ways around that in class. We'll show people that. Um, but yeah, hyphen and halo, those are the big brands for that. You can spend, depending on the size of the seal, $12 for a twin pack up to about $22 for a twin pack. That's nothing you want to skip skimp on, period, is the tourniquets, the, the chest pads and all, uh, yeah. all that stuff. Yep. Uh, <clears throat> so with uh, your training, how do groups of uh, people or just people in general uh, go about getting the training? Yeah, so if you're interested in the training, guys, you can go to saveonemore.life. And it's all words, so the, the, uh, the lettering there, it's not the number one. It's actually written out. And it's not a .com. It's saveonemore.life. That'll take you to our website. You'll see uh, some photos from previous classes or from when we were in Ukraine, some of the soldiers that we were training. Um, you'll also see class dates. So you can go to take a class at the tab at the top right. And when you click on that, it'll show you the current listings of public classes. Now, if you're somebody that says, man, they're not in my area, there's a couple things. One, you could sign up for our mailing uh, list, our email list. And that's the best way to be informed when new classes are posted. So definitely sign up for that. I signed up today. Awesome. And it's, it's pretty simple. I mean, it doesn't take a lot of time. We're also not trying to bombard you guys. You can expect to get a notification uh, maybe once a month or once bi-monthly, something like that. It's only when we have something to show you. So we're not going to bombard you with emails. And if you wanted to take a class, click the Take Class tab. And it'll show you those options. You click the one that's relevant to you. If you want to take all three of the classes over the course of two days that we offer it, then you will want to sign up for uh, the one that lists all three classes. It makes easy sense. And then it'll take you to a page when you click that, that will ask you if you're wanting uh, to, like what you're wanting to pay. You can put whatever number in that you want, including the number zero. Uh, but just know that the donations that's what's helping the next guy. We're doing this in a pay it forward kind of way where I'm trusting that if the Lord wants these classes to continue, that he will make that happen. And so far, when people come to class, I think that they consistently get so much out of it that it makes them actually want more. And we've had people ask, actually, if it's worth coming again to class. And I tell them, yeah, you can just come again. Just sign up if you want. We don't always do the same scenarios. So if you come to a class, let's say in Tennessee, you will get a different version of class than if you come to one in, let's say, North Carolina. We just we change it all the time. There's no guaranteed way for the student to know if it's going to have similarities or not. Um, well, on top of that, then it helps build your muscle memory. It does. Yeah, it does. And every every venue we use adds uh, different interesting challenges for me as the instructor give you an example so there's a, a really great venue we like to use in indiana a friend of mine named john he's got a uh, a good youtube channel nys tv he goes into a lot of interesting uh, conspiracies or a lot of interesting current events really cool guy but john himself is a great man and he's got a place that's a big barn it's like a three-story, 7,000-square-foot barn that he uses for a lot of different functions. He lets us go use that facility for training. And it's an excellent venue. 
It's got stairs. It's got lots of rooms. It's got three levels. It's got a pond outside. It's got all this different stuff that we can use however we want. He doesn't care. I can use blood mix however much I want. I can get the students soaking wet. I can get them muddy. I can whatever. So we can use fireworks, all this different stuff. Um, and he just doesn't care. He also tends to help us with the class. Well, that environment lets me do a whole different series of things because of the venue. Then if we go to a place like we have coming up in North Carolina, we've got a class uh, in January that still has some spots open if anybody's interested. It's going to be near Charlotte. And that class has a very different vibe that it's going to have. So the, the venue there is much more rural in nature. And it's just a lot of fun. Every time we go to a new venue, I get to try new things. We get to do different things purely because what the venue has around it. So an example is, uh, as in, just for instance, this isn't necessarily what will happen in North Carolina, but if there's a lot of woods in an area, we can do a scenario through woods. And it changes everything. Trying to uh, move casualties safely out of a wooded environment is very different than on a flat floor in a hospital, right? Correct. So just, just that minor change changes everything about the class. Same thing when we go to the dark stuff. So when we go to the nighttime class for night rescue, uh, some environments I can illuminate as I see fit. So again, that barn, it means that I can turn lights on or off however I want. Or it's really cool when we have an environment that doesn't have power at all where the only illumination you've got, the only, only ambient light you've got is from whatever lights I'm letting you use at the time. That could be literally a green chem light, a green glow stick. So every environment's different. Every class is different. But consistently, the stress learning is, is there. That's the best way I've found for people to have long-lasting results that they can actually go out and they can actually use on real people. So do you happen to have like a water scenario, like say somebody's on a jet ski, falls off, cracks their head, they're passed out in the water, that kind of a thing? I don't currently, partly because that is not an environment I usually have access to simulate. Gotcha. But that's an excellent idea. I mean, that's a very common one. That boating accidents happen all the time. Um that's an excellent version of something we could do in the future. That just kind of is because I haven't had an environment that would be. See, my mind's going like 100 miles per hour right now, thinking of scenarios and situations, thinking about this. So oh, yeah. I feel it, you. It, I it just came up. I literally <laughs> sit around and just fantasize about scenarios. Uh, in fact, I've got um, two new ones that nobody's had yet that I'm going to be throwing into the North Carolina class for the first go. Now, the Indiana one, that's in Tell City, right? It is. Yeah, we've got two dates currently listed. I think one is in September, and I think one is in March or April. I'd have to actually pull up my own website to tell you for certain. That's interesting because that's not too far from where I'm at. Yeah, it's it's a great place. And again, John it's, is an awesome guy. It's about an mm, hour, hour and 15 minutes from me. Oh, shoot. Then I ought to see you soon then. <laughs> <laughs> I will have to definitely look at signing up because I really need to go back and practice my skills because I haven't worked in the hospital since, uh, 2020, sure. end of 2020. So, well, you know, what's cool is, uh, I try to present these, hopefully this is something this, anybody listening is gathering. I'm trying to present these things, not in a uh, egotistical know-it-all way. I'm just trying to show people what I have found works 
and what I've experienced or what I've observed, right? So Correct. in doing that, I tell people at the beginning of class, if you leave this class and you find a specific way that works better for you in your life, for any task that we go over, then that is what you should do. I'm giving you a version, like a way of doing various things. And I want them to practice that way so that they can see what works and find out the flaws in the method or, or find out, hey, my hand does this and I need to do this slightly differently. It's almost like this journey of self-discovery. I want them to figure out what works and why. And if they can do that without me telling them on a PowerPoint, that's the stuff that will stick in their brain. Yeah, see, I can't learn from just sitting in a classroom. I have to be hands-on or else reading it, it'll just, I'll forget about it, you know, 10, 15 minutes later. Me too. And, and in fact, that's, again, why I teach it the way I do. It's a replica of what I want to learn like. <laughs> Plus, I just want to get my hands, you know, dirty and, and do it myself, you know, like have somebody show me, then let me do it. And then you observe me do it. Exactly. It's also different when you can experience what things feel like, right? So we can't do that with every topic, but with tourniquets as an example, um, I've, I've, I made a video one time. I've got a YouTube channel called uh, Shield Bearer of Faith. And then we also have a Save One More Life YouTube channel. They're separate. Well, on the Shield Bearer of Faith channel, I've done a video before where I was just doing like sledgehammer swings on a tire and some tire flips and some sandbag lifts, things like that. They were just simple activities with tourniquet application, though. And this is something people can just do in their backyard. And that was what I was trying to point out. You always get the people, though, right, that are going to fly off the rails with the comments and be like, yep. his arm is going to fall off. <laughs> I don't even bother engaging with them because, one, you're not going to convince them through a, a communication in that format, right? You're not going to text message somebody a convincing enough reply. Two, I have done this a lot. Chances are the person that's trying to convince me not to do it is a robot. <laughs> so chances, right. Or if they're not a robot, they probably have not done it. So they're trying to convince me from an ignorance vantage point. Whereas I can tell them for certain, it's like, guys, I promise you, I can leave this thing on for 30 straight minutes, take it off, and my arm is not going to fall off. Now, we don't try to do that. We don't try to leave it on for 30 minutes straight, but we can leave it on 10 or 15 with no problem at all. Yeah. And that is where a lot of the learning comes. When people actually know what they should expect by applying a tourniquet, well, then they won't be surprised, right? And they can, they can explain that for the casualty when they respond. If you're going to come and help me at a car wreck and you're going to tell me, hey, man, I'm going to put a tourniquet on you and it's going to save your life. Well, as soon as you start tightening that thing down and it starts to hurt, I'm going to think something's wrong if you don't tell me that it's supposed to, right? So right. we have to know that ahead of time. I don't want people to respond out of a vantage point of ignorance. I want them to go knowing, hey, buddy, this is going to hurt, but it's going to save your life. I'm here with you. I got you. That's much more convincing to me than just putting it on me and letting me deal with it. <laughs> That's, I mean... That's just plain and simple. <laughs> I mean, people just need to know that when you are applying tourniquets, they're, they're going to hurt. And, you know, you just need to feed back the information to the person that you're, you're applying it to. Yep. And another so that way you don't get hit, too, on top of it. Absolutely. Yeah, keeping yourself safe is another prominent thing we go over. 
Um, yeah. Especially with things like wound packing. If you're going to dive in gauze deep in someone's you know, pelvic girdle, you're going to need to be aware they're going to probably not like that. Um, right. So we go over some of that. Another thing that we get feedback on by the end of class, because again, we do so many applications of these tasks is by the end, people have had tourniquets put on themselves or put on someone else so many times that they actually build a tolerance to it. And an example of that is if you've ever met someone who has had like seven or eight children, by the time they get to the fifth one, they know what's going on, right? (laughs) Right. So it's not to say that they don't feel it. It's to say that they know what's going on. Their brain has already rationalized it. And they have a tolerance to what's happening that someone that's giving birth the first time may or may not have. Well, it's the same with tourniquets, where we can actually build a tolerance to that. You can do this task so many times that you just think it's nothing. And I witnessed this in class where people will forget they even have them on. I'll get them to continue doing an activity because we're building their mind. I want to make them believe they can't die. I want to make them believe they can't lose that they will continue on until they can't do anymore. And when that's the expectation, they find that by the end of class, they have a significant resilience to having part of their body disabled or having a tourniquet on for 10 straight minutes. They just don't notice it anymore. It's just another thing. Well, chances are that person will do much better when it's real. And you you see this in uh, military and law enforcement training with things like simunitions. We were not allowed to die when we had training like that. We were never allowed to act like we were even shot. You were, in, you were instructed. It's like, you will continue on until you can't do anymore because they wanted to get you to practice not quitting. It is something you can practice. And I found that now I'm not a very good person to play paintball or airsoft with because if you hit me in the big toe, I'm not dead. I'm not out. And that's how my, my mind was reprogrammed by the training that they gave us. Well, now I feed that to people too in my classes. I want them to practice not dying. I want them to practice continuing on. You don't quit. You don't get to choose when your last moment is. And that's actually reality anyway. If, if you are injured to the point of death, you'll be gone in a minute. You won't have to decide. Don't quit though. Do everything you can do as long as you can do it. And everything else is up to God. Correct. All right. So with your organization, where would you like to see this go? And what are your future goals with it? Well, I'm really hoping that we can get people to know we exist more. That's the biggest hurdle right now um, is just the awareness. And that's why I was so thankful that you were willing to do this, uh, this whole thing with us, because That's the biggest problem we're having at the moment is just people knowing that we are even doing this. So that's the big thing. If anyone talks about it, if anyone um, shares or likes any of the videos, again, we've got lots of videos. A lot of it is training oriented that people can just watch on Instagram, Save One More Life Instagram or on YouTube. And they're usually in a, a minute or two, something like that. So real brief format. That's the big thing. Just people being aware we exist. And then getting people to show up to class because it really doesn't matter um, how many dates or locations we set up if no one comes. So that's the, the big hurdle to get over. 
Funding, I'm confident, will be there as people see value. And that has continued to this point. The classes that are currently posted are because somebody has already seen enough value in what we're doing that they have donated. And so again, that, that pay it forward kind of method. Um, and then I'm hoping that within the next year that we will hit hopefully the Northeast more. That was something that uh, we've had more requests from. We've got a couple guys in New Jersey that have requested, uh, but that's, it's, it's tougher to do in some of those areas because of some of the things we take. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, we're wanting to do more classes Midwest, maybe even uh, out West, but that one's a lot more expensive of a trip going places like Idaho, Oregon. I've taught out there before. It's an expensive drive and we have to drive because of the materials and gear we take. Correct. So we're hoping to set up more classes. Um, I'm sure that we will do many more this coming year. We're also hoping to do another missions trip to somewhere. So we're functioning like domestic missionaries now, right? Where we're trying to do good things in the United States um, and we're trying not to focus on uh, making money doing it, right? Uh, in fact, to, to date right now, I have not made uh, a paycheck from doing these classes and we've done several in the last several months. Um, that's not the objective of having this. The objective is to teach people. So, so what if, would be a... What would be a couple of countries you would like to go to? I'm really praying on that. So I was planning on going and doing a, a three week trip to Ukraine again in February, but the Lord guided us not to do that right now. I'm still willing, but my wife and I, and then uh, our, our board, we fasted about it and we prayed about it. And I honestly thought I was being told to go in February. And after my wife and I fasted, we, did not feel the Lord telling us that. So that was a no for right now. I don't know why, and it doesn't matter. Um, we, I've also been praying about um, Israel. I prayed about that when that whole thing kicked off. I did not feel the Lord tell me in any way to participate, but Israel's Israel. I mean, they, they're pretty set up anyway. Yeah. Um, Ukraine actually has it a lot harder than Israel because one, they're not a NATO nation. And then two, they weren't quite as ready. Israel's always at war. <laughs> So, um, yeah, but Ukraine's one I prayed about. I don't know if that's going to happen currently. I've also prayed some about some locations in Africa, but I haven't been convicted on any of that yet. So I'm open to the Lord's suggestion. And if he wants to use a human being to suggest something, I'm open to that too. <laughs> <laughs> but we pray about all of it. We don't just go just because it sounds like a good idea. Right. And how can people help your organization? Do you guys have uh, like a merch shop that some of the proceeds go to or donations or just doing the classes? So donations are a big one. If someone is feeling led to do so, we have uh, we've had a couple people that are um, of the tithing mindset, right? Some people give a small portion of their tithe uh, every so often, maybe monthly, something like that, that they may have given it to a church or another nonprofit they're welcome to do that to us as well. Um, and it's all very much appreciated. We also are, anytime we do classes, we bring uh, things like stickers and t-shirts that if anyone wants to purchase, we do that primarily at classes just because we're small. We're not trying to set up an entire merch shop. Um, if somebody wanted a t-shirt, they could email us at uh, training at saveonemore.life and they're welcome to email us and we can, um, we can probably get them one sent to them. 
we've been doing, I think, uh, $35, something like that for the shirt. Okay, and again, awesome. all of that is just helping us continue to teach classes. Yeah, I want to I want to be able to do what I can to help you out. Um, I know I will put your information into my link tree. So that way it's on my social medias. Um, that way they can check it out. Uh, I will also put that in the prologue of the show. Um, another question I had for you was how do you interview potential candidates to come into your group? So we're small right now. Um, currently I'm uh, the lead instructor for the organization and I've, I've set up the classes to be capable of being taught with just me if need be. Now I usually would rather have um, role players that I know several guys around the country I have taught them or I've worked with them before. And that's usually the thing. If somebody wants to um, volunteer their time and participate with us as role player, anything like that, uh, assistant instructor, anything of that nature, I really have to know them prior. And I get a lot of knowledge about what a human being is like really when they come to class because of the stress, right? So if, if I have somebody that's the nicest guy you've ever met on Monday, you go to lunch with him, he's just a super guy, and then you apply some stress in class and he gets angry at his teammates, that tells me something about them. Um, so a board member that I currently have named Cole, you can uh, see a, a little bit of him on the website. Cole went with me to Ukraine. That's not a requirement. That I just got to know Cole in a very different environment, right? So we were doing this stuff over there. Cole was also a nurse, so his background is, is useful in that. And then Ronnie, who's also on our board, Ronnie has, uh, he came to class with me, gosh, probably two years ago. Um, and he's just a super guy. And then he's also, because I asked him to, he's also um, come and assisted by role-playing in class two or three times now. Um, and he's just a great guy. So usually I need to know the person a little deeper than, Hey, I, I was a combat vet or I was a, a doctor or anything like that. That stuff actually doesn't matter as much to me as character because right. we're, we're trying to impress upon people that the average Joe, just people like me, dude, I'm nothing special that they can have a real impact on the world if they do these things, if they get trained and they have the willingness to act. Well, I'm not a special forces guy, man. So I'm not actually trying to market to those people. There's plenty of companies out there that I'm sure will, will give you that caliber of training. We're trying to give people a whole lot of professional level training that is tangible and useful immediately in a very short time frame, And I want to know what someone's character is like, not as much about what their background is. The background can come later, but I want to know who someone is really. Awesome. Yeah. That was a, a question from my buddy Lambo who has a podcast and uh, you know, they have a community of people and some of the people in his community are ER nurses and medics. Cool. So, you know, they're, they're very interested in, I'm, uh, no, they can't wait to hear this this uh, episode. So I'm sure no, I'm they'll probably, you. I'm sure they will be reaching out to you. So trust me. <laughs> Fantastic. And I'll tell you, even if they uh, if they want a training, the style of training I do, most people in the medical field do not get. And I know that not from my opinion, but from students. 
So I had a, um, an example of this in class once. He was a uh, medical doctor who was in Afghanistan for the military. So he was um, doing surgeries and such for combat injuries, right? And he loved the class. I've had multiple special forces soldiers in class that love the class. I've had multiple guys that were retired from special forces that love the class. We've had, I had a guy, he had a really sad uh, testimony, actually. He was a Vietnam vet, uh, came to class. Really cool guy. His testimonies from Vietnam, though, it weighed on him. And so a big portion of what we talk about in class is some of the mental weight, right? Not just the physical stuff. And the stuff that you deal with after the incident, we go into that too, because that's the stuff that has led an unfortunately large number of American soldiers to end their own lives. It yep, wasn't a lot of PTSD. That's right. It wasn't the actual combat that killed them. It was getting back home and not dealing with what combat did to them. And so we talked some about that. I've got um, testimonies regarding some of that with my own life. And, um, Anyway, so if your uh, your friends, if their group is interested in training, I'm not trying to convince them I know all about it. But putting people under stress has unique unique advantages. <laughs> Correct, and that's a lot of thing you know people don't really think about is the mental aspect and the emotional aspect. Because if you've never worked in the ER or worked in you know some kind of trauma, uh, you don't realize the amount of PTSD, you can suffer from seeing what you see, whether it be a gunshot wound, whether it be uh, getting thrown from a vehicle to, you know, just some, just all the ordinary kind of things. Yes. Well, it, and something else I found interesting was we had a, one of my first students ever, actually, when I was teaching for my former employer, um, one of the first classes I ever did for him was a, a husband and wife. She was a uh, trauma nurse. She, she worked in the ER and then he was a trauma doctor. And I don't know their specific titles or fields. Don't, don't get me wrong on that. But doctor and nurse in the ER is what their roles were. And I asked them at the end of class, I was like, guys, I'm humbled that y'all are in class, uh, but why are you in my class? I'm nothing like what you guys are. And the doctor, the husband of the equation spoke up. He said, I had never put a tourniquet on. He goes, I had never opened a chest seal. That blew my mind because in my head, I'm like, of course they go over this. Of course they've done this. Not necessarily. Some of that heavily depends on where you were this person. Like, are you a doctor in Chicago or are you a doctor in the middle of Oklahoma? Um, <laughs> and in his case, it was actually, I think, Ohio. Um, but anyway, that was a really interesting moment for me where he was very honest. He's like, dude, I'm good in my field. He's like, but I didn't have to know this stuff. All of these things you covered in this class are done before the person ever gets to me. And it was this clicking moment in my mind is this aha moment where he was telling me that the street level medicine that I teach is not what he was taught. Just oh, like no. the, the, the colleges. I mean, <laughs> From what I know now about what goes on in some of these colleges, the way they train people and the, and the way they teach people is nothing compared to what you're going to see in real life. Correct. Much less in a non-sterile environment, right? That's the, the street. Well, and I reference like street level medicine. That's what I'm talking yeah. about. 
uh, is, you know, it's not sterile. Everything's imperfect. It's not going to be well lit. You're not going to have all the people you're, you're wanting to help you. It's just bad. You got potential threats around you. You don't know what the environment's going to bring as compared to a more controlled setting in the hospital. And it's just not identical. It's not me trying to say one is more important than the other. They're just two different pieces of the same problem. You know, the, uh, the injured party needs to be able to get from the street level and survive long enough to get to the hospital. 100%. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you for inviting me. This has been one of my one of my best episodes, uh, one of my favorite episodes. Well, because you know, just having the medical background and and seeing what you have done with these classes and in the videos I've watched, uh, completely amazing, uh, very awesome idea. And I just thank for you, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. If anybody has so, any questions, go to saveonemore.life or email us training at saveonemore.life. And where are you so, on social medias? So on Instagram, we are saveonemore.life. And then if you go to YouTube, I think it's just save one more life. Awesome. So thank you, Twitch, for coming on the show. That is the show, everyone. Thanks for listening and stay We the Ungovernable. Thank you for listening to the Renegades Rant Podcast. You can find the Kentucky Renegade on TikTok, Instagram, or Twitter, but the easiest way is his link tree, which you can find in his bio. Please like, follow, share the show, and remember, be ungovernable.